You're listening to the Skift Podcast. In this episode, Skift founder and CEO Rafid Ali is joined by Michael O'Regan, PhD, a lecturer at Glasgow Caledonian University focused on tourism and the events industry. They discuss the impact of over-tourism on destinations, how the concept has perhaps become outdated in the post-COVID era, and more sustainable approaches to tourism management. The conversation also touches on questions of bias towards visitors from certain regions and what exactly constitutes a quote-unquote quality tourist. For more like this and the latest news and travel, visit skift.com. Well, welcome to another edition of the Skift podcast. I'm so glad to have Michael Oregan, who's a, who's a, who's a PhD and a lecturer at Glasgow Caledonian University focused on tourism and the events industry. He's had a great career in the tourism industry in the UK and Ireland. Um, was was a UK or Ireland? Um, I was well. I'm Irish, and I've worked in the industry there. Got my primary education there, but then moved to the UK for uh, my PhD. PhD, and then you've been at at, at a at a few universities, including China as well, where where you were there for you said four years. That's correct. Yes, yeah. so I worked in industry for a couple of years, working. Basically, pre-Expedia or pre-Booking.com, you know, we were doing the accommodation bookings for the Irish Tourist Board, and we were taking information calls from around the world, you know, for Irish tourist brochures, etc. Then moved on to marketing executive for an area, so south of Dublin, the capital, um, as a marketing executive, we call it, you know, miniature Ireland, lots of beaches and mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I did the PhD in backpacking, how people become backpackers, as in low oh, budget wow. travelers. And then decided to teach in uh, China for four years while well, it was an overseas UK campus. So it wasn't as uh, maybe as, uh, as strange or as different as people might maybe think, but really enjoyed four years there uh, before coming back to the UK uh, as an academic here. So uh, so the reason I wanted you on the podcast is that you, you, you came out with um, academic, would you, would you call it a paper? Was it a Free paper because it's not technically a uh, mm. actual academic paper. Well, what would you describe it as? Well, I've written two academic papers on this over, word oh. or phrase over tourism, and yes. and there there is a current piece of research that I'm doing, looking at how newspapers cover the phrase, and mm. also looking at how academic papers have been looking at the phrase over the last three or four years. Okay. So from that, some initial you know some initial thoughts, some initial findings came out about how journalists, you know, have built narratives around the phrase and the metaphors they link with over tourism as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I uh, came across your, uh, your piece on, I think, uh, on the tourism, tourism geographies website and describe for those of you, who do, uh, for those of the people who don't know, what is tourism geographies? Well, basically, it's linked to the Royal Geographic Society in the UK. It's like the American uh, Geography Association. It's a big, you know, no, charity or nonprofit that represents kind of the discipline or the subject area of geography and all its varied uh, subject areas from cultural to, to physical. And basically, you know, as in UK academia, it's important that we reach out to 
you know, to the public and we engage people with our ideas. Mm -hmm. So basically it's bringing those ideas that we're working on, that we're developing papers on, that we're analyzing research on and bringing that out to the public so we can, you know, the, the public can engage with those ideas, not just uh, the public, but again, you know, students across third level, but also right. uh, secondary level or high school students as well. Okay. So you wrote this, uh, post on uh, why you think over-tourism is a outdated construct uh, post-COVID particularly, or in general has been, is now an outdated construct. And surprise, surprise, I agreed with you uh, on it also on LinkedIn. And, and the genesis of, of why we're having conversation is we coined the term, Skiff coined the term over-tourism back in 2016. In a, in a what was what became a seminal piece for us on, on Iceland. It was a deep dive, one of our reporters uh, um, went to Iceland, had been doing research from before that, and wrote this very long piece on Iceland as a mirror to the challenges of managing tourism, uh, managing too much tourism in a destination. And this is particularly was concentrated in Iceland because uh, the, after the volcano, it became very popular as a, as a place to go. And suddenly the whole country reoriented from a very primarily fishing uh, economy marine uh, uh, and then banking emerged during the financial crisis uh, that that happened after uh, and then became a tourist based economy and and it continues to be now uh, and so we coined the term over tourism as a way to introduce one that piece and two as a way to spur the debate beyond um uh, the previous there's there have been decades of work on sustainable tourism as a concept but uh, very much appealing to the altruistic side of of the industry, which is which we can talk about hadn't necessarily broken through uh, as a concept to the industry. And the reason we created the term was to appeal to the fears of of uh, too much tourism for destinations, for countries, for um, certainly it was benefiting obviously the, the 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 industry quite a bit in terms of just the volume of tourists. So that was the construct. It wasn't meant to be a, either a framework to manage tourism, but certainly the aim was not to demonize tourists, but the aim was to to have the tourist boards and countries and regions and governments wake up to the challenges and manage. So explain in this what's what was your thesis with with this post that you wrote recently. Um, well, you know, congratulations. It was a great phrase, a great term. And, you know, so many people around the world and so many different, you know, uh, groups of people from, you know, the European Parliament, UNWTO, uh, United Nations World Tourism Organization, journalists, consultants, you know, did grasp on to this phrase and this word. And, you know, one of my previous papers looked at how over tourism was used on Twitter and I again how it grew from, you know, not being used at all as a hashtag, you know, and then, you know, culminating in, you know, 5,000 plus tweets in 2019. So, you know, I understand why it was used and I understand why people grasped onto it because there were people were feeling, or at least some people were feeling in destinations that, you know, there were problems with tourism or too many tourists and they wanted to express that in their own way. And, the problem was it became, you know, um, used for 
very different reasons by diff very different groups of people um, who you know built narratives around it and built crisis narratives around it. Okay. And within two years of Skift, you know, coining the phrase or the term, you know, it was it exploded from not just the problem but into a crisis, and not just a crisis in Iceland, but a crisis you know across the whole globe. You know, right. and you know, by some accounts, you know, if you were to look at the, let's say the newspaper articles, and I'm currently exploring, you know, how many destinations had been linked with over-tourism, but there's something like 70 or 80, you know, destinations uh, mm -hmm. around the world. Massive cities, big global cities like Barcelona, all the way down to small rural towns, uh, heritage attractions, down to local markets, you know, and then we use these phrases around that, you know, you know, that destinations are suffering or that we're being plagued by um, tourists and mm. that there was a flood of tourists. So the right. way we use metaphors to right. describe over tourism is problematic. And we probably use metaphors and it's not just journalists, it's academics, it's consultants, politicians, right. it's, it's politicians who are using these metaphors as well. And we would use it to describe tourists as being the problem or the source problem of over tourism. And we applied these metaphors and some of them are pretty ugly metaphors, you know, swarms mm -hmm. of tourists or plagues of tourists mm -hmm. in ways that we would never describe any other mobile grouping, uh, mm -hmm. whether it be business people or whether it be commuters or whether it be, you know, any other group that moves from place to place for any particular reason. And that has an impact, you know, if you treat this group of people as a threat, then the next step is you need a solution to the threat. And mm -hmm. again, you're trying to direct, you know, maybe um, these metaphors towards policymakers, to institutions. And it did have an impact. You did have lots of local mayors and politicians saying, okay, we agree that over tourism exists. We agree that tourists are the problem. So, you know, what do we need to do? We need to find tourists for eating a sandwich on a, on a, uh, Kind of or, yeah, yeah. or we need to put up CCTV cameras or we need to track them or we need to uh, filter out the good ones from the bad ones, the high quality right. from the low quality. Right. So I think that led to a lot of issues, especially once it started impacting policy making and started impacting, you know, the way politicians talk about tourism. Mm -hmm. And and you've you've spent time in China uh, quite a bit and uh, it looked like are still connected to the region quite a bit, Chinese tours became a focus of this, unfortunately, in negative ways, whether it was incidents in Paris. Uh, I remember we were covering, mm -hmm. uh, this is pre-COVID, about, about how um, almost racism, if you will, against Chinese tourists um, in and other parts of Europe as well, uh, some parts of Southeast Asia. So from your perspective, you know, does the... You know, when the Westerners were traveling into East mm. for decades, nobody had an issue. Mm. It's it's when East Easterners started coming to West that we suddenly started having an issue. So, do you think there's an undercurrent of that as well? There is an undercurrent of that. You know, it wasn't very explicit, but you know, some journalists were you know in the same paragraph or the next paragraph talking about specific nationalities, primarily the Chinese, and primarily when they're moving in tour groups or tour packages. Groups as to being, you know, one of the source countries for, you know, over tourism. 
and you know and it's you know if you look back at you know tourism history as we do it at uh, this university you know we've seen the same thing happen with russia when they emerged after of course glasnost and the opening mm -hmm. up uh, same thing happened and the same thing when japan in the 80s started outbound right the camera well. camera the they had the big cameras and i remember mm. at least growing up i wasn't in the travel industry but i remember stories around uh, Japanese tourists really see the world through their their cameras versus actually looking at looking at. So this was way before mobile phone became a thing. Exactly. Yeah, it was like you know, the, you know, how can we deal with these specific tourists and what you know they're leading to particular specific problems. And the same with the Russians. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's it's emerging and within as India outbound travel, you can see some of the same discourses and narratives starting out there. And that you know that's another piece of research I'm looking at because. You know, of course, as an emerging um, country, as a you know, and as tourism as a kind of soft power outlet, you know, mm -hmm. you know, Chinese and Chinese authorities have been very sensitive to criticism of their tourists. You know, they've been doing a lot to develop you know edu educational booklets, and we were showing these booklets because they're published by the Chinese uh, Tourist Board to give to outbound tourists. Yeah, I remember to, that. As to you know, what do they feel about you know? having you know uh, these brochures printed and it's, and it's, you know it's it, they don't really recognize themselves in 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 those brochures, in those brochures and, yeah. and you know if you're looking at you know statistically in terms of their you know the issues with um i suppose uh, air rage and issues on flights it's primarily coming from you know countries like the uk and you know because we allow alcohol sales you know pre-flights and the states yeah there's daily issues with air rage and it certainly so again, happened over the pandemic where people were with the masks and everything else that also collided with that so from your perspective obviously the debate of the word over tourism and the debate and the the was at its peak in 2019 i would say mm. 2018 2019 and then COVID hit and obviously everything stopped. So everybody stopped talking about over tourism, at least in the mainstream media. But mm -hmm. academics continued because most of the research is, is long, long range versus the headlines. You and other academics were continuing your research on not just over tourism, the word, but, but sort of managing tourism as it came back, correct? That's correct. Yeah, you know, before you know the pandemic, it was cascading into something, you know, serious because again, journalists and academics were calling it a crisis, calling it an emergency, calling it a a disaster, and it was a global phenomenon that we had needed to to tackle if we were to, you know, to protect um, what they consider the victims of over tourism, which is local residents right. um, and the people who live in particular communities who are vulnerable to too many tourists, but it was being used. And I, you know, there's a little bit of blame here that goes to the UNWTO by saying, well, over tourism is anything that is you know, negative towards local people's quality of life. But that means it could be applied to basically any place because it's right. based on perceptions, it's based on perceptions of tourists lead to overcrowding or criminality or rising rents or the local shop disappearing it could be anything and then it would meet basically the criteria of mm -hmm, over tourism mm -hmm. right. so it was being used everywhere for anything 
regardless of you know whether it was reality or it was just a perception based on some small sample or based on some interviews with local stakeholders who mm. may have had a vested interest in you know um, calling it over tourism yeah um so yeah and so 2019 it's you know it this country well it was the you know the the highlight but after that academics are still coming to grips as to okay if this is not the phrase we're going to use is if this doesn't lead to a framework or methodology you know what's going to replace it how do how else do we talk about the issues in some destinations and there's an increasing number of people saying you know this isn't the phrase that we can use as, as a kind of a analytical concept this is not how we can measure mismanagement and it directs our attention only at tourists it doesn't direct attention at the the facilitators of tourism, you know, right. at policy level who design visa systems, the people who provide licenses at local level for bars and nightclubs, you know, and you can see low-cost airlines, uh, the the low-cost airlines, the proliferation of Airbnb and mm. into into neighborhoods. So a lot of complex issues beyond certainly blaming tourists for mm. for all the ills. Uh, I guess is is the point you're trying to make. Exactly. Yeah. And destinations are trying to move beyond over tourism. And it's like uh, Voldemort and Harry Potter. It's, it's something now that you, you, the word has disappeared in lexicon in some, you know, some institutions or, Correct. you know, the, the, uh, in the language that politicians are using, they're moving on a little bit. And I think basically everyone else has to move on a little bit too to something else. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and that's why, you know, we're having this conversation because I, I agree with you. I think the, uh, post-pandemic and particularly we we did a story right before pandemic i'm gonna say late 2019 or something on what happens when over tourism meets climate change and um with a with a pretty deep dive on uh what this what too much tourism means for climate change and and the effect that that tourism generally has as an uh, and it does have an extractive effect on the planet. And in pandemic, climate change, certainly in the last two, three years, has emerged as an emergency. Media, again, I guess, uh, I don't know if you'll argue that media is also using some of these headlines to create more panic when, meth when it needs to have a, a, a methodical tackling of issues that, that underlie climate change in general. But for for us, the the conversation has moved beyond the the grabbing the headlines to say, okay, here are the solutions. Here's where climate. Here's here's why it's become uh, climate change has entered into the debate, and here's how companies are responding. Whether it's companies that are traveling for corporate travel and have their own ESG targets to reduce their own carbon footprint, to hotels and airlines. Everybody has now announced their um, targets 2030, 2050 in terms of carbon neutral as companies, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's become a lot more nuanced and certainly COVID did a whole reset on somewhat simplistic debate uh, that was there before. And so I think that's why I agreed with the premise that you had in terms of as a term, it, it, it I would say had its utility when it came, was stretched to the maximum that it could. And then I don't know if it would have been retired had COVID not not sort of hit our consciousness, if you will, uh, or or came. So, 
from your perspective, sort of post COVID, for now it's just recovery, recovery, recovery. Like let's just get recovery going, and that happened over the last year, two years, something like that. Asia is just starting now, mm. uh, or at least parts of Asia have are starting mm. now. Thailand, so, yeah, but then yeah, we have Vietnam and other countries, and partly because we moved on to different phrases. We have this, you know, discourse around quality tourists and how do we get quality tourists in the post-COVID recovery. And that has exactly the same problems as, you know, over tourism in some ways. It, it, yeah, Thailand has been using the word quality tourist mm. and there, it, it says, oh, we, we don't want backpackers. And you've done a PhD in backpacking, mm. as you said. What's your sense of sort of this, this quest for quality tourists and what's underlying it? Of course, it's, you know, it's a kind of a solution to over-tourism in some way that instead of, you know, having mass tourists, that you would suddenly be able to pivot towards quality tourists. And what does quality tourists even mean? Um, that is a good question. Um, and different people will say different things from New Zealand, Vietnam, you know, they're all saying this and they'll, they're saying, well, these quality tourists are richer. They, But then when you, you know, ask them, you know, how will they get there? Well, private jets is, you know, and how long would they stay? Well, two days, where are they going to stay? Maybe a franchise hotel. That's not very quality because again, if they're staying only for one, two nights, you know, the, even just the carbon with the flight alone and even with the food choices, even with the hotel choice, not, my, not much money is going to be staying in the economy. But, you know, if we were looking at backpackers and backpackers have been, you know, um, I suppose scapegoated in, Thailand, Vietnam, New Zealand, where they say they don't want these people anymore. I would say that they are the quality tourists in some way, if, we're, if I were to use that phrase, because they stay longer, they're using public transport, they're using local restaurants, they're staying in maybe independent guest houses or homestays. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I had a kind of recent blog about, you know, its use. Uh, I just published a book on you know, on backpacking mm -hmm. as being a valuable asset to any destination, whether it be a emerging destination where destinations can slowly adapt to tourism based on smaller numbers of longer staying, you know, backpackers. And, you know, you mentioned Iceland at the beginning. And of course, because, and some people will blame Instagram and Justin Bieber and everyone else for, you know, the explosion of tourism in Iceland, but there was, you know, economic changes after the, uh, the crash there, the economic crash, and they weren't able to adapt to, you know, tourism rather than plan for tourism in particular right. areas of uh, our sectors weren't able to, were vulnerable to too many tourists and that's understood. So that's why, you know, when I hear, you know, this new phrase, quality tourists, yeah, I get a, a sense of deja vu again. But what do you think of, of phrases, and I guess this is an academic phrase, re, regenerative tourism, which is a term that mm. has emerged. It came from academia, from, mm. from, from my understanding. Obviously, sustainable tourism as a concept has been there. You can call it responsible tourism. Mm. Then, then came transform, transformative travel, which was very sort of me-centric uh, term. Uh, that, that didn't come from the, I don't think it came from the academic, that just came from from, I don't know, magazines, travel magazines. And then regenerative tourism, which is give back more than you take away uh, concept. Um, yeah, we've, you know, we borrow a lot of phrases like over tourism and sometimes we adapt them, you know, quite well, or we empirically prove them or you know, build a framework around them. 
other times, you know, less successful. So, you know, I understand that we need sustainable development, we need mobility and spatial justice, we need, you know, just transitions as we move to, a, you know, net zero economies. But I think using some of these phrases, it kind of hides as much as we learn from these phrases. And mm. if you were to ask different people, what is regenerative tourism, just like anything else, what is ecotourism or what is um, green and tourism? Yeah, green tourism or my favorite, responsible tourism. You get ten different answers from ten different people. Um, mm -hmm. But I understand. You know, I I'm in really full agreement with you and in full agreement with those people who feel that you know tourism has to be managed in some way, in that it can have unintended impacts on destinations. It can decrease quality of life. For those people who live in you know particular destinations but sometimes i think we're it just leads us to ask the wrong questions and point the, the fingers in the wrong direction all the mm. tools that we need we already have you know you mentioned some of them already in terms of tourist taxes in terms of you know um, airport policy um in terms of um, regulating short-term rentals you know in terms of improving education on tourism and hospitality at local level, mm -hmm. so you know, to you know, to improve the job quality, etc. You know, trying to re reduce the expectation around uh, labor in hospitality, tourism, and in events, uh, zero hour contracts, the gig economy. And you know, Amsterdam are pretty good in you know realizing this. You know that they were suffering a little bit from mismanagement at destination level and. Mm -hmm. Rather than you know calling for quality tourists or calling for you know um, you know uh, or proportioning blame on you know particular types of tourists maybe you know that have worked to you know limit licensing hours yeah. to demarket a little bit to yeah they focused use... yesterday there was a news uh, where we're recording this uh, in early April uh, and um, yesterday there was a news that that Amsterdam the Schiphol Airport is uh, stopping flights at a certain time in the night, so it won't be a twenty-four by seven operation anymore. With an idea that it it, it improves the quality of people that are living around um, the airport. So certainly, there's more awareness as a holistic versus just piecemeal solutions. Um, certainly, Amsterdam has been um, uh, thinking about it probably the most deeply than than other cities in uh, in Europe. Uh, it looks like. Yeah, Amsterdam was one of the first, you know, destinations where over tourism was, you know, being applied and, and correct, yeah. And so, it, you know, of course, Venus as well, which is a very unique case, of course. Correct, it's a very unique um, case. Yeah, yeah, Amsterdam but, has yeah, a but Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, but yeah, Amsterdam, you know, has done quite a bit to manage tourism, and to, of course, to facilitate business interests, but to facilitate local people. But of course, you know, it's a global city, you know, there are, and tourism does bring, you know, changes, some changes for the good, some changes for the bad. And I think sometimes when we again go back to the, the new phrases, now it's about degrowth and how to reduce tourism. And again, I think, you know, that has, we have to be very careful around, you know, that concept of degrowth and how we actually do it. And there's very little practical advice as to how economies should uh, uh, reduce consumption, and especially in the light of you know real world changes. You know we have Saudi Arabia. You know it was just recently 
decide they're going to launch a new airline with you know 400 new aircraft or we've seen you know china uh chinese airlines expanding rapidly as well so you know the, the strategies and the tools that we need to manage uh tourism are there but again it's often up to politicians to you know to um grasp the nettle and of course face down particular of course there are vested interests and there are particular right. um stakeholders who don't want to put a break or don't want to see any restriction on on tourism tourism and yeah that's well, equally a mistake. yeah mm. uh well it's been fascinating i want to end with a, a question a big picture question that i have uh which is the uh the the role today from your perspective of academia in um in the in tourism industry and maybe we, we focus on tourism versus the larger travel but we can certainly talk about the larger mm -hmm. travel you've 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 as you as you said you, your your career has been in the industry uh, initially uh across geographies not just in uh, a single geography but multiple geographies being in multiple universities and so post covid the state of tourism academia or research and and its importance i don't i want to well I don't want to put words in that practical practical importance mm. to the world. You know, it's one of the world's biggest, um, I suppose, work, you know, industrial or economic sectors. It implies tens of millions of people around the world. Many of them, you know, um, you know, starting their careers are for people who may not be able to get the education to be an engineer or to be, you know, a scientist. And for many people who've are only you know, beginning to explore, you know, their potential, you know, tourism is incredibly important in terms of employment, in terms of global understanding. I don't want to go too far, but in terms of, you know, global peace and intercultural exchange as well, you know, if right. we were to think yeah, about things like the Cold War from, you know, relationships with, you know, uh, our neighbors. And I do worry that we, when we talk about tourism and we, you know, especially during, during COVID, that it really kind of put certain people, a lot young people off tourism uh, mm -hmm. in a way that it somehow was uh, so unsustainable as to have any, you know, merit or mm -hmm. to, or indeed uh, not sustainable as a kind of a, a career. And I do worry that, you know, we really want those young people to come back into, into study and learn about the industry and learn how to, and, and increasingly, you know, if you look at our programs in academia, they are critical. So if you look at economists or other, you know, uh, disciplines, maybe they haven't really, you know, rephrased or changed over the last 10, 15 years. But, you know, in tourism programs and events programs, increasingly we do have these conversations around sustainability and spatial and mobility justice in terms of decolonization or decolonizing right. the curriculum and, Inclusion and in general, overall. Uh, exactly, and yeah. you know, equality, diversity, inclusion, and that's you know, it's what I teach every single day. So I think you know, we have a very important role to play um, in developing these young people uh, as they go work in hotels and work in, um, you know, in marketing organizations and DMOs and um, various you know sectors linked linked to tourism and hospitality. Mm -hmm. So I would love to see. Again, our politicians and um, our business leaders and 
other important stakeholders, you know, to joining us and to, to help us and, you know, to, you know, create a, a curriculum or tourism program that's beneficial not just to the students themselves, but to the businesses, to destinations, and of course, local residents. And I think that's, you know, a great way forward if we, you know, start talking to each other and engaging with each other so that our research has an impact on their businesses or in, you know, in, in their strategies, but in vice versa, we understand where they're coming from right, as well. Right. Well, uh, this has been fascinating, Michael. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully as you do more research, we'll, uh, we'll get to talk about it more uh, as you come up with more research on this. But thanks very much for inviting me, Ali. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, I'm a, a fervent follower of Skift. So appreciate it. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. This has been the Skift Podcast. Thank you for listening.